Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Raymond Luzak is perhaps best known for his books, films, and plays. He was raised in Ironwood, a small mining town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Number seven in a family of nine children, he lost much of his hearing due to double pneumonia at the age of eight months. After high school graduation, Luzak went on to Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., where he earned a B.A. in English. He learned American Sign Language and became involved with the deaf community and won numerous scholarships in recognition of his writing. In 1988, he moved to New York City. In short order, his play Snooty won first place in the New York Deaf Theater's 1990 Samuel Edwards Deaf Playwrights Competition, and his essay, Notes of a Deaf Gay Writer, won acceptance as a cover story for Christopher Street Magazine. Soon after, Ellison Publications asked him to edit Eyes of Desire, a deaf, gay, and lesbian reader, which, after its appearance in June 1993, eventually nabbed two Lamba Literary Award finalist nominations. In 2005, he relocated to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he continues to write, edit, and publish. Well, hello, everybody. This is Evelyn Gathu coming from Crystal Falls, next to my mother, and next to Julie Niskern, I would love, it is my pleasure to introduce to you tonight, Raymond Lusak, along with Adam, his interpreter. And we're gonna have a, a special time tonight. We're gonna be doing some different things. Um, at one point this evening, we're gonna ask everyone to turn off their video and make sure you're muted because that way, Adam has an easier time translating for Raymond. Okay. Now, so I've got a few things to talk about, some news. So tonight we're talking about Once Upon a Twin. And Raymond has many poetry books. A new one is called Chlorophyll, all about poems of the Upper Peninsula. So if you liked once Upon a Twin, you'll like this one. I'm halfway through. <laughs> and a little bit of business. Next month, we are making a change to the schedule. Instead of reading The Home Wind by Terry Martin, we are going to be reading this book. It's called Great Lakes Monsters and Mysteries. Ooh. These two guys have been very hard to get a hold of. Right, Victor? Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't describe how hard it is. And, and we managed. So they, Terry has um, a conflict, and she couldn't meet in October during her scheduled time. So she's going to be in February. We're going to put these guys in October. And I'll put that all in the email tomorrow. Without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Victor for a moment. Victor usually has some news to share. I do. Oh, Victor. All right. This is the perfect time of the year to uh, talk about UP Reader. This is our annual publication of the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors association and you can submit your work to up reader and be published all you have to do is join our group which is 40 dollars a year for one person 
or 50 and your whole family can join. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have until November 15th to prepare your work and send it in. And you could be in uh, volume seven, which is coming out in April of 2023. So that's really exciting. And uh, I have one other thing to share before I turn it back to Evelyn. Uh, this is uh, Compassion Michigan, and we're going to do something we have never done before in the history of 19 meetings of the UP Notable Book Club. Uh, Modern History Press is going to be donating uh, 15 copies of this book to all the libraries in the UP. So I'll be sending this book out uh, to the library co-op in Marquette and they will distribute 15 copies amongst the 45 UP libraries. So you'll be able to read Raymond's Compassion Michigan at your local public library. How cool is that? And uh, it's, it's based around um, almost 60 or 70 years of history in Ironwood, Michigan. And it's got a little bit of an LGBTQ kind of vibe to it which is something you don't see often in, in UP literature. So, um, that is all for me, and I will turn it back to Evelyn. Welcome, everyone. And um, without any further ado, here, here comes Raymond. So thank you, Raymond, and thank you, Adam. I'm delighted you've all come, and it's an honor to be here. I know the Upper Peninsula, and I'm not, not a lot of people know the UP. And when I go to other cities outside of the UP for readings, people are less familiar. And so I refer to the Upper Peninsula as not the place that they're familiar with, but this place. And so you know, when I like to write about this specific area that people don't know as much about, so before getting into the book, I do want to share a video that is on YouTube that I think sets up the milieu for the book very nicely, if I may say so. So Victor, if you wouldn't mind, would you go ahead and share the YouTube video? All right, here we go. And the book is called Once Upon a Twin. And the book is about the experience of being deaf and oral in the 1970s. And here we go, here's the video. Nine months. Raymond Lutzak. Mom still wonders how I lost my hearing. She mentions having a miscarriage in April 65 and being surprised to find herself pregnant again in June 65. Dr. Santini felt I'd be born in January 66. Instead, I arrived in November 65, fully formed, not a preemie. I go home two days later. Not long after, my sister Carol takes to reading out loud from a book. She is learning how to read to me. As I'm trapped in my crib, I have apparently cocked my ears to her voice laboriously decoding words. Then mom changes her story. 
She remembers having a miscarriage in March 65. It fell out of her while she sat on the toilet. At age 16, I constantly wondered if that was indeed possible, a body expelling her own fetus like that. A heat wave in July 66. I turned pink and hot, but everyone is hot anyway. Mom wonders maybe something's truly wrong. At the hospital, I'm found to have double pneumonia and a high fever. I look close to dying, so a priest is called in. I survived my last rites of death, but my hearing doesn't. Then Mom changes details again. She says she had a DNC done in February 65, when she felt her fetus wasn't growing. It wasn't even two centimeters long. No idea whether it was a boy or a girl. I'm no longer sure what to believe. After I come back home from the hospital, Carol reads to me again. This time, I bob my head around. She doesn't realize that I've lost most of my hearing. No one has either. She gets frustrated with me and gives up. By the time I turn two and a half, Mom asks her doctor why I haven't begun talking. He says, well, maybe he's deaf. She comes home and tells Dad who's been washing me. He stands me up and turns me around so I can face the wall above the tub. I don't respond to my name. Research indicates a twin in the womb could miscarry, leaving behind its other half overlooked. In the 60s, technology hadn't existed to detect such a tiny baby. That's why mom's pregnancy test results in June 65 had so surprised everyone. Up and down Oak Street, where I once roamed, the trees are mostly gone. But the shadow of my other half still runs a mean yellow stripe right through the road of my life. the mystery of never knowing him. So Evelyn and I were talking about uh, this. Uh, do you have any questions for me, Evelyn, before we move forward about this? Evelyn, do you have any comments or questions before I move on to anything else? Um, no, but I really, I, I we're, that was a neat video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we, we enjoyed the the twin yeah um do you is there anything you know it's it's such a confusing thing is there anything more that you can add about this beginning the concept of your book the twin to you oh sure i'm happy to explain a little bit about that about that before i go into the poems so 
you're all familiar with the UP and you know, not that many people live there and there are very, very few deaf people there. And where I was raised, I think there's maybe four or five deaf people that lived in my hometown at all. And my parents back then were under the belief that speech was the way to go and that you should not include sign language at all. And so the few deaf people that they'd heard about in the area, my parents were not keen on having me meet or interact with them. And so I had no deaf role models. And what role models I had were cast as very negatively. So back then, I don't think people understood the, the wider uh, place of deaf people in the world. And so I was born to a hearing family of nine children. So I'm number seven of nine. So when I was born, I seemed hearing at first, as you saw in the video, and then there came a time when they, the family realized that I was deaf. And my parents were seeking a program near my hometown, and my hometown simply didn't have one. By the way, the name sign that I use for Ironwood, I sign it this way because of its connection to mining in, in the town. And so Ironwood is signed that way in my recitations. So my parents went seeking about looking, and to make a long story short, I'll say that the, my mom found a deaf program that was speech-oriented deaf program in Houghton. Now, Houghton is, if you're familiar with the UP, you know where Ironwood is here, then Houghton is just up there on the peninsula. And so uh, that comes up in one of my poems today is why I mentioned it. And so there was a deaf program there. And it was oral oriented. And my, you know, if you may not be familiar with this, oralism is this notion of educating deaf people. It's been very sort of binary uh, in the past. There's been a speech only approach that forbade sign language that was somewhat prominent uh, a long time ago that used the uh, you know, auxiliary aids and hearing aids and, and forbade sign. And then there was signing education back in the day, which was largely held in schools for the deaf. And there was one downstate a little bit that uh, had a school for the deaf that was more signing oriented. So at any rate, there's a lot of uh, political division between uh, uh, hearing people who have dominated deaf education and have been the powerhouses who have administered more of these programs and have been, you know, steering parents in those in the direction of those world programs. Now, bear in mind that ninety percent of deaf kids have hearing parents. Well, wait, let me get this right. It's about ninety percent of deaf kids have hearing parents. So. 90% of the people who have deaf kids, of course, they want their kids to be like them and they don't want to put in the effort to learn sign language so that their child grows up with full access. It's much easier to educate their child in a speech only uh, orientation. So some nine years pass and I went to Houghton and learned speech therapy and so forth. And the deaf program was a pretty, pretty small program and speech oriented, as I said. So uh, let's see, uh, there was one more bit of background I was going to give you before we began, but at any rate, I come from a very large hearing family, and obviously my family wasn't accessible to me. You know, there's a, uh, many deaf people who come from hearing families uh, shared this horrible experience that we in the deaf community called the dinner table syndrome. And let me give you a sense of what that means. Just a perfect example of the dinner table syndrome is me with my 
table of nine siblings and the rest of the family. And of course, everybody's hearing except me and they're chattering away and laughing and having a grand time. And isn't that so funny and going back and forth and as a deaf person, I'm looking back and forth and I can't lip read at that pace. And so, yeah, as a lip reader, we depend highly on context. So I mean by that, that if I don't know what we're talking about, there's no way I can lip read that. I mean, I often use this example. If I go to an art gallery and there's an art show there and I'm standing there talking with a hearing friend, you know, of course my brain thinks, okay, the context has to be that we're talking about Picasso or Van Gogh, whatever the case might be, right? So that's where my brain is oriented and that's the context I'm giving what we're talking to, the world of art. But if someone comes up to me and Say, says, uh, so and starts talking about Argentina, then that, you know, you as the, as hearing people in that audience may get the context of that automatically, but I, I don't get it. You know, the, it adds nothing to the context of art. I don't get why we're talking about Argentina. And okay, wait, I know Argentina is a country in South America. I follow that. But in that moment, my brain is oriented towards art and interpreting what's happening around me. So, you have that. So take this and apply that to the situation of family chatter at the dinner table. And people change topics with such rapid pace. So by the time you move from one speaker to another to try to track the conversation, it's a loss. And so uh, the, to add you know, insult to injury, when somebody else says something and you ask what, what was said, they say, I'll tell you later. That is so offensive to me as a person. That means that their pleasure and having a good time trumps my access in that moment. And so I learned as a deaf kid that I was a second and third class citizen wherever I was. I was never on level ground, right? So you need to have access to this good time, but no, you could never going to have it. And so I think this is the experience of so many deaf people who really do not look forward to gathering with their hearing family because they're considered they're kept at, at, at a level of access that's inferior to the, everybody else around them. You know, you don't have access to the family lore and stories and you don't know what's going on. So I think that's some of this context here. Through the years, my mother told me that I'd had a twin or this possibility of having had a twin. I always wondered if I'd had a twin, how much better my life might have been. You know, so that musing and, and thought led me to thinking how different life would be. I would have had an ally by my side. I wouldn't have been alone in this family that was at a loss for what to do with me. So that's the context. Okay, so with that, I'm gonna just dive into some of the poems, okay? My Corpse Self. Alone in these woods across the street from mom's house, Trails worn down became boundaries of a country with no name. It would take me many years to walk this meandering path across peat, concrete, grill, escalator, airplane, elevator, aisle. In between waited for clarifications. The only thing found in morass of trees and grasses was my shadow, barely alive, 
panting for my kiss, sleeping forlorn prince. He looked familiar, but nothing like a reflection. My own watery self, not even close, tall and lanky with a mask made of wood, stained and polished with veneer perfected from years pretending to be happy while people took him down behind his back, threw tiny paper balls at him, always feigning innocence. Surely you jest, their faces all said. I looked down at his lax skeleton in a faux shroud of Turin. His body spotted with grays like leopard gone starved. I didn't want to hold him. I didn't want the weight of his troubles when in my shoes, a sea, pebbles of relentless reminder puncturing each stepped walk for miles. Couldn't shadow be light easily blown away? like how people dismiss me with a glance, just like my hearing family and classmates constantly cleaved, mortar stabbed into bricks until my face turned unreadable, now his there in my arms. The darkness of him, transparent, bright, shining eyes begging me to save him, alone in these woods. Okay, so until I was 16, I wore not the kind of hearing aids you might be more familiar with, but the kind that were body mounted and had long thick wires, you know, and it was different technology. So you need to understand that for the, for the context. So the next one is called uh, Rich Boy 79, 1979. Deaf Bridge Board, 1979. I would one day be the son of that rich man with a monocle found in the game of Monopoly. I'd own the entire town beyond Pamita. I wouldn't think twice about buying an expensive pair of designer jeans at the Down Under shop. At Stern and Field, on Aurora and Suffolk, all the kids in my class would ask meekly to see my latest handheld electronic game, the kind that you couldn't find anywhere, the kind kids would know everything about, the kind they'd grow antenna just to ferret them out. They'd turn into insects with shiny shellbacks gleaming with bands of gold strapped across as they murmured and compared between themselves. Their dull scores blinking, tiny sticks of red light, they'd huddle together and forget about everything. I'd wear the latest Nike sneakers from J.C. Penney's, the kind none of the kids could afford. They'd stare and gawk at me of all people when they thought me poor. What with 
eight siblings and a dog packed into a house of only four bedrooms. My family weren't rich. Everybody knew that. But on that first day of school, I'd say nothing. As I hung my denim trucker jacket on my hook in the hallway, they'd see the name Furstenberg stitched on the back pocket of my new jeans. I'd be wearing a blondie shirt to show off the fact that I went to Minneapolis to see the sultry Debbie Harry sing Heart of Glass. For once, the hearing aid cords winding up to my ears would look cool, as if I were always listening to something cool that they'd never hear. Always straining to hear the next hot band. I'd hear with them before they appeared on American Bandstand some Saturday afternoon. They'd wish to be deaf like me, always listening to the future. Those kids in class would whisper about me, never mocking me, but always with awe. Okay. So the next piece, I had a best friend in Houghton, named Todd Colburn. And so I signed his name this way, TC. So that's the context. This is titled Charles E. Klingbeil. One, even back in third grade, Chuck was taller and bigger than anyone in our class. I was becoming more and more mainstreamed in my hearing class. I was to sit in the front row and lip read Miss Roadhaven. Todd probably sat near me. We had our art classes in the basement of Ryan's school. It wasn't designed to be a classroom probably a former storage room. It had a quadrant of four tables. Chuck and his buddies took one table. Todd and I, with a few others, took another. During a lull, when the teacher had to step out for a minute, Chuck nudged his friends. He made a dirty face at me. I didn't say anything. It was the first time a hearing classmate had made fun of me. Todd suddenly said something. I had never seen him so angry. I was afraid to ask what he just said. Chuck and his buddies just cracked up. The coals of fury in Todd's eyes never cooled, even when the teacher returned. Two. Returning to Houghton as a sophomore, I unexpectedly recognized Chuck in the hallway between classes. Impossibly taller and bigger with broad shoulders, I'd never seen a boy my age strut or bulk up that big. My Ironwood Catholic High School 
didn't have a football team. Chuck was my first boy man. Not a boy, not a teenager, not yet a man, but an aura of what he would become. He didn't seem to recognize me. He was apparently big on football. In our classroom, he never registered on my radar. I wasn't afraid of him at all. These jocks were never my friends. Three, the rules of football have always been beyond my comprehension. <laughs> so on a big green field of white stripes, a whistle startles and then a football is tossed some yards and then bam, a mass of arms and legs and helmets and all for what? More brain concussions? Now that Chuck has died suddenly, a heart attack at O'Hare Airport. I Google for images of him, but my jaw drops. He was an NFL player. Really? Wow. He had played for the Miami Dolphins. Anyway, he had a knee injury or something. Got addicted to heavy painkillers and had been using anabolic steroids too. Ended up coaching at Michigan Tech. Made a few drug-addled miscalculations. Stood up and responded to the judge. Well, my thinking got me here. Hey, Chuck, I forgive you. Too late to say that now, but yeah. So a little bit of explanation here. You may recall that I was in Houghton for nine years and really the first six years was Houghton and then there was five years in Ironwood. And then there were three years again in Houghton. And so for six years, it was in Houghton. And let's see, 76, it was 10. And then came back to Ironwood full time. And for uh, there was a five-year gap there away from Houghton. So, so this is again about Todd, entitled That One Jet Hockey Game. Todd, you unexpectedly reappeared at my house in Ironwood one December evening, a year after I was transferred back home to Ironwood Catholic grade school. Two hours drive away from you. Teachers and parents had felt I would be a real mainstream success and closer to my family too. No one seemed to care how much work it took me to lip read even with my hearing aids. But anyway, there you stood. You were a bit taller, but so was I. In those days, nobody was sending off warning bells about the onset of puberty. You wore a button shirt. You met some of my siblings who were watching TV. And my mom too. Maybe you met my dad too. Your divorced dad had relocated back to Ironwood. So 
you were visiting him. He didn't live too far from my house, just over the hill, actually, though I didn't know it at the time. So there you were with your impish smile when we went downstairs to play jet hockey. I wanted to tell you about them boys at my new school who had figured out ways to make me cry so they could laugh at my nasal voice missing consonants and my ear molds standing out like buttons waiting to be pressed only in my nightmares. I wanted to tell you how badly I missed you each time I stood by the brick wall watching them boys play Nerf football. I wanted to tell you how much I wanted to run away from home and hide in your bedroom off Royce Road so no one but you would find me. I would be your ghost friend, alive but never dead, always looking out for you. Instead, we stood facing each other on either side of the big jet hockey console. It's blue and red markings printed in the formica of an ice hockey rink with puncture, with holes to let air rise, allowing the flap jet puck to float across the sheen surface as if a UFO zigzagging. We played the game so hard with our round hand sticks that sometimes the puck flew straight up and slapped the low ceiling above us. We laughed so hard. It was as if nothing between us had changed and yet everything had. Oh, Todd, I lied about everything because I didn't want you to worry. And I'm now open for questions, Q&A, discussion. I'm open. Well, I'll just start by saying thank you. Um, I, I feel a little bad that you couldn't see all of our faces, but I know you were talking to Adam because if everyone else was like us three, we were smiling. <laughs> thank you thank you so much it was a wonderful poetry reading and really just one moment my own it was nice but you reading them so much better i would like to say something okay, so I, I just wanted to say that uh if as a deaf person once everybody's video came up it came hard the tiles are shifting so if just the one person who's speaking at a time can have their video up that way I can see the interpreter signing and uh, you know, I'm also not an actor, I can't memorize lines. And so I, I also got to tell you, I, I cheat. I have, I've got a teleprompter that helps me out and I practice my rendition. That's part of how I do it. But some of this is also different because on, on a stage, you know, and I love to have actual deaf people in the audience because it ups my game with, performance hearing people don't know how well I'm signing I could be signing lazily going all through it and a hearing audience doesn't know any difference right I like to I still like to have 
put the same level of effort I would have with the deaf person in the audience because, you know, I, I know um, we're competing with like all kinds of streaming services and social media for attention. You've given the time out. That's why I try to put in what I can to make sure that this is uh, polished and ready uh, performance. And, you know, I think people think that ASL and English are the same thing and that it's that easy, but and the ASL is not English on the hands. It follows a very different word order and sentence structure. And so they each have their own syntax. And so many of you may not be familiar with that. And one of the reasons I enjoy working with Adam as my interpreter for these kinds of things is because we have a system that we've worked out, right? So uh, he's reading it in English, but I've also written for Adam the ASL gloss. And by this, I mean, it's a way of tracking which signs were done in which order. You can't, uh, I can't look at the English and then try to sign in ASL. Because if I did that, I, I would be doing this constant translation effort. So instead, I give the English version to Adam, the interpreter, and I read the ASL gloss. It's written in ASL order, and it's a way of prompting me. And I hope the interpreter was able to keep up with me. That's where that kind of practice is so important. I give the materials to the interpreter ahead of time and make sure I sound good, right? <laughs> you know, you don't want the voice quality to not be uh, on par. So hopefully there wasn't too much lag between the sign and the voicing. And so, yeah. So if anybody has a question, come on up. I have a comment if I can. Hi there, Raymond. Um, I just wanted to say, I, when you talked about the dinner table as a deaf child, that really hit my heart. As a teacher of oral deaf for children, I just want you to know every principal I worked under, I fought for signing for certain children in my classroom. Um, I had a very bad experience with one sweet young boy who was profoundly deaf and the principal would not let me do any signing with him. And his parents just wanted him to be oral so badly. Um, it ended up that the mother committed suicide because she couldn't handle it anymore. So that dear student not only was frustrated with not being able to communicate, but then he lost his mother and could not be communicated to what had gone on. So I am totally for signing and for oral the combined program for those who can, can and for those who can't signing because signing is going to be needed all through the, your life. So I'm right behind you. I thank you so much for these poems. Um, knowing you from when you're little and seeing you now as a man makes me care for you and love you all the more. Thank you so much, Raymond. Thank you. Thank you, that's very kind. And for those of you that don't know who, Mary here is my former teacher when I was nine, 10, yeah, 11, eight, somewhere eight, in there, in that range. Eight, nine, yeah. Cutest little redhead with freckles. <laughs> so delighted you could join here. And back then there was no signing allowed, oral only program, no. but I mean, nice to have you around and that know that some people had some common sense. So thank you. Yeah, I'll let you, thanks. Okay. All right, uh, other questions, comments? I'm open. <coughs> uh, did you have any questions, uh, Rachel? Go ahead. So I'm curious about how much time it takes for you to 
craft that book. Yeah, the uh, Compassion Michigan. How long did that take? And I'm curious, like, you know, for any of your books, how long does a work like that take to, to do? Okay, thank you, Rachel. So it really depends. Every book is different. Sometimes I've got an idea and it's on fire and it's just this rapid process of creation. And then sometimes I've got a book that slogs a little bit in the production. You know, it, it just goes in stages and spurts. And sometimes I even have to put a pause on it. Compassion Michigan was one that was inspired by a couple of things. One, a book called Winesburg, Ohio. Winesburg. Yeah, I think I got that. Ohio. Yeah. And it was written by Sherwood Anderson and published in The Interpreter Missed the Date. Uh, beautiful, full of short stories and amazing poetry that was very descriptive of that time. And when Ohio was considered the Midwest, you know? And so I love that book so much. I read it a lot and it had a big influence on me. And then I think in 2016, 2015, about that, I met um, Eleanor from Michigan and one of the uh, publishing companies there, uh, not Victor, uh, somebody else there, and uh, who was talking about uh, their interest in the work uh, that centered around the UP. And so I thought, why not tell stories about my hometown of Ironwood? And Winesboro, Ohio was, you know, cut that covered a span of a few years. Compassion, Michigan, I wanted to cover about 130 years of Ironwood history because I'm fascinated with the history of my hometown. There's a lot there that most people just don't know. So, I mean, uh, the fact that there was interest in the work really inspired me to be very productive. I think it was a total of about three months. I was just on fire with it. And then I was hoping that the book would be published in 2019 at the 100 year mark, but it wasn't. And I think they ended up turning my book down. And I was kind of, you know, but I'm grateful to my eventual publisher of the book. I'm very grateful. So, so then Once Upon a Twin was a different process. I think there was about two years had passed and I hadn't really published a book of poetry. I, I needed some inspiration. I just was sitting in the muck, you know? And then I decided to go to St. Louis. I had some friends there and I stayed for a month. Give myself kind of, you know, an author's retreat, if you will. And I had no idea that, you know, when I got to St. Louis, exactly what I was going to do was this artist in residence. I was going to do something, you know? And then when I got there, well, I should mention that each book of poetry, I make sure that it's not the same. I don't want to be reproducing the same thing. Each has to have its own character, you know? You know, Madonna, for example, every album has a very different sort of look and feel and sound, you know? And she wants every album to have a unique look and feel and its own character, so I, the same way. So with this book, I decided, well, 
first I was thinking through this and I was thinking, you know, I remembered the stories my mother had told me about how I could have been a twin. And strangely enough, I'd never explored that. And I thought, why not write about it? Even though I hadn't really explored it. So that started things off. And then as I got into the book, I realized I couldn't write this in regular English, which might think of it, you know, in standard English, because if you were reading this book, you'll notice there's no use of capital letters, little, uh, no use of punctuation. And that's intentional in that book because I was trying to give that language of incompleteness, you know, that lack of full development of wholeness there, that lack of. And so I thought it was right for that book. You know, I don't like books that sort of are full of sloppy writing, you know, just amble around or, you know, they're just doing lowercase only on the eyes for effect. Oh, hold on one second. Okay, so, you know, that very sort of pretentiousness, I, I don't care for it, but I thought that structure worked for this book and its intent. Does that help answer your question? It does, it does, thank you. Okay, any other questions? I just like to make a brief comment. Oh, I moved to tears by you guys. I can hardly talk. Oh, I feel like I've gone on a journey to a, a new land that I've always been in, but I couldn't see it because it was invisible to me. I, I hope that doesn't sound pretentious, but thank you both of you guys. It's been an amazing evening for me. Thank you, thank you. Another question there? I just had one. I'm glad you put in here this double helix poem because it really kind of helps people who don't do the ALS to understand what you are doing. I'm glad it's here. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And strangely enough, that poem uh, was written originally in English, right, uh, some time ago. And then uh, the, it was the end of that month there in St. Louis. One morning, it just came to me in a flash, why not look at this and show a visible uh, uh, representation of the helix? Because twins is all about DNA, right? You know, it's about having the same copy of DNA or very nearly the same exact DNA. And so I thought in ASL, I can use ASL gloss to express this poem in two different languages in the same way. Now, uh, you know, there's not, ASL, I talked about how different they are, but there's still a connection. Like we're still family. And, you know, my family didn't give me that ASL that I needed, but still the book is kind of about that desire for connection with my hearing family. And my hope that if I had had a twin, that that would have been my staunch supporter, that I wouldn't have been alone or isolated given that, you know, in that hearing family of nine. You know, I think that is this dream I have about that twin. So that's why I dedicated this book to my friend Todd, because I, looking back, really, you know, he could have been my twin. He could have been that staunch companion, even though he was this hearing boy. Uh, and I don't know why we had such fast friendship between us. I think 
probably because back then there was this heavyset boy who, you know, you see, you know, lots of kids are heavyset, you know, these days, but it just wasn't as common back then. But back in those days, it was much less common. And in the third grade, I think, you know, to have a heavyset kid was not seen the same way. And I think he was maybe subject to, you know, some feelings about that. But he ended up growing up, you know, tall and lanky, a Navy fellow and all of that. But back then he was a little different. So maybe that's part of what created affinity between us because, you know, people didn't want me, people didn't want him because of our differences, maybe. Any other questions? What, Julie here. Is it Rachel or Julie? Julianne. Um, I'm your your uh, interest in not interest. Your um, poems about Catholicism and your being an altar boy and having ten different pairs of shoes that you could wear so that you would all look the same on the altar as an altar boy. And I and the fact that the priest, this father was um, uh, a pedophile. I, I, was, I was fascinated by um, all of the emphasis or references, I shouldn't say, references to Catholicism and your involvement as an altar boy. Do you want to comment on uh, how Catholicism shaped you as a, as a young boy? And this particular poem about the uh, Baltimore, Baltimore Catechism for the Deaf. Um, Anyway, I was fascinated by, by all of that. So would you like to um, talk about the... Uh... Sure, I'm happy to. Okay. And funny enough, so my first book was called St. Michael's Fall. That book was really exploring a couple of things. One, oralism and Catholicism, right? And so how I found my own identity and community in Ironwood. And then after that, I kind of stopped, you know, thinking about, yeah, that Catholic experience is really, I did, for a long time, I called myself a recovering Catholic, if you will. Yeah, that's been my longstanding joke for many years. I just thought, eh, that's it. And then it came time to write uh, what became Once Upon a Twin. And that's when I realized I couldn't, you know, it wasn't right to deny my the Catholic in me. And that's why I felt like it had to be included. Because, you know, that twin being gone, I don't know, some for some reason, I, I had this sense that it belonged there. And then, oh, no, about that priest. Interesting enough. I didn't know until, I think, I guess, seven years ago. I didn't know until then about that priest. And then he died in 2005, but it so happened that, I don't know exactly how, but I remember looking uh, him up on the internet and finding out that uh, he had sexual allegations and just being dumbfounded. It was just so random. Just, hey, I wonder what happened with this person from it. And then it seemed a little shaky in my memory, but then, oh my gosh, he sure enough was. And it was in the LA Times, I think. And he was among 26 uh, priests who they found they had sufficient evidence on. And uh, he was in the LA dio uh, diocese. 
and he went off to a town named Bergland. Went up to a town called Bergland in the uh, Upper Peninsula, and so the Catholic Church just did the textbook response of what do we do with the priest? Well, we ship him somewhere else, in some small town where nobody knows about him and nobody knows his history. Now, I didn't he have any experience uh, with with him. And I heard about others though, but oh. And then I think somebody else was it Shelley or Rachel? Rachel. And then Shelly, let's go, okay, Rachel. I don't know how many people here will know what autism means. A-U-D-I-S-M, autism. But and Raymond, you might be able to explain a little more about it, but I'm curious as a writer, and I as a writer have this experience. So I'm curious about your experience confronting autism in your work, either in terms of trying to be published, you know, and getting your, your work published, or in dealing with hearing editors. Uh, do you have any experience like that that you can share? Right, sure, I'll give you one example in a nutshell. So as a deaf writer, let me just back this up a second. Some of you, may not know uh, the term inspiration porn, but inspiration porn refers to the idea that, you know, when somebody has a disability, it's typically about somebody that is disabled, able-bodied people use that to feel so good about themselves. Like, so for example, oh my goodness, look at this disabled person, like FDR, right? Yeah, and there's some play that where at the end of the play, uh, they're you know talking about polio, and at the very end of the play, all of a sudden FDR stands just briefly to give this stirring moment, to give this idea that oh he's so close to able-bodied and everybody feels good about it, but you know what I mean? It's not realistic. Or uh, another example is where, like uh, the miracle worker with Helen Keller, for example, is another great example of inspiration porn. And there are a couple of things that it means the writer has created the, created the story and uh, omitted key facts. Like there's a couple of key facts missing from this story because before Helen, uh, uh, before her teacher came to her home, do you know that she had already created about 60 home signs that she was using commonly in her home. She was already signing, not ASL, mind you, they were home signs, but she had a vocabulary of some 60 words before the teacher ever got there. And she communicated with her best friend, the daughter of uh, the cook who was black. Then when Ann Sullivan gets here, she decided, oh no, that, that little girl that you've had, that you've been playing with is no good. You can't play with her anymore. So if you look at Helen Keller's own book, her own autobiography, I think it's called My Story, something like that. I think in somewhere in the first 12 pages, she talks about that she had 60 signs at home and that the, for, for the rest of her life, she wondered where that little girl had gone. She never got in touch with her again. So that means for the sake of that play, they make Helen Keller look like a savage who knew no language and they make her almost apish. And then by the end of the play, 
she's learned to fingerspell in somebody's hand. I mean, it's an insult to Helen Keller and to the legacy of deaf blind people portraying them so animalistically. It's, it's insulting. And so that's kind of inspiration porn that you run into. Now, I'll also say that some 30 years ago, I wrote an essay called Notes, uh, Note Takers for Deaf Gay Writers, or Notes for Deaf Gay Writers, okay? And there were two months later, uh, I was living in New York, and I went to a big literary party where they had you know, writers, publishers, so forth, all of that. And a lot of people knew of that magazine. Well, there was this one editor for another magazine who said, hey, you want to write an article about you know, deaf writers? Then? So I wrote this article. And in that article, I mentioned that, so it, it's not so much about uh, what, who the person is, is the, what's written. And the editor ended up turning it down because he was like, no, I wanted to see a story of your suffering. I wanted to see the trauma and heartache of being a deaf writer. And that's not what I'd written. I'd written something that talked literally just about being a deaf writer. And they wanted this saga of suffering. And so I think as a writer, as a deaf writer, I have to bring my work and bring it to hearing editors who don't know anything about deaf culture, deaf experience. And they're often looking for inspiration porn, which my work just doesn't center around that because I don't think it's the right thing to do. You know, deaf people, there's no reason to be using us to be inspiring other people for these weird reasons. There's just, you know, that's not the point. So Rachel? Well, just kind of a brief comment. It's kind of similar to the experience I've had with hearing editors. They'll always throw the word tragic or right? some kind of tragedy into my writing. You know, when it's talking about becoming deaf or, you know, when I'm talking about my deaf experience, they'll try to edit in these ideas of tragedy into it. And I'm like, no, no, no. Then I go, go back and clean these references that they put in there out because there's nothing tragic about this story. Simply am deaf. I think so many times I've had that experience. And I think people don't realize that in our American culture, you know, autism is so ingrained that it's not, and ableism is so ingrained that people don't even recognize how it's there. People that are deaf or disabled are automatically not seen as being on par to the superior able-bodied people. You know, and so they don't realize how they're playing that out in their language choice and all of those things. And I think Shelly had something, she's gone, but I remember popping up at one point. And anybody else? I just wanted to comment that being disabled doesn't mean incapable. You're just as capable as anyone else. That's right, that's right. Okay, Brandy. Uh, well, I had two comments uh, more than questions. The first one, <clears throat> being an editor myself as well, I have pointed a lot of people uh, for those, the consciousness style guide, which I found to be a great resource to send people to, to learn about, uh, well, being conscious of how you write and how you edit groups that you are not necessarily a part of. 
And I recommend that to all editors and recommend it, recommend it to your editors too. It's a great resource uh, for writers and especially writing about people whose communities you aren't necessarily a part of. Uh, and it's online and they send a monthly email and it's awesome. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is I, I just wanted to comment that I have read your book, your poetry and some stories for the UP reader as the audiobook, And I really enjoy watching you sign. And I love reading poetry because I love the rhythm of it. And I love how the rhythm uh, continues on through your hands as well, that it's the same, you get the same feel. It's different, but the same at the same time. And I love watching the rhythm of the hands as well as hearing it. And especially since I do more of the speaking part. It's beautiful in both ways. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's very kind. I'll also add that uh, when you're writing about a community that you're not a member of, I so recommend asking for a sensitivity reader, they call it. I think it's so important to have a reader that has that purpose. I'm not gonna name the writer, but I, there's a very well-esteemed writer with a well-esteemed you know, publisher instead of experience that wrote about different people who just had atrocious errors in there because the editor was hearing, the writer wasn't in group, was not familiar with deaf culture and not familiar with what they were saying in their writing. And it was aghast. I just cringe factor, you know, totally. And kind of the same idea of having a white writer talking about black communities when they don't ask for a black reader to read this and say, hey, does this not gel right? Is this inaccurate? You know, has, does this really line up? You know, you got to also be willing to take that critique when you get it too. You know, when I've worked with black actors who are performing my plays, you know, they have the full stamp of approval on their portrayal. If, you know, if, if it's a, a black poem that they're portraying, then they tell me like they're, you're in charge of that. Me as a white guy coming here, I'm coming at it with a different set of privileges, I think they have the last say about how that's interpreted in their community, you know, or for their community. So I think that's important, yeah. And just for example, I remember the story of, when was it, maybe some 30 years ago, I went to Ironwood to give a reading. And fascinating, but the first time I think it was like 96. And I showed up at the theater and there were like nine deaf people in the audience in the first row. Like, whoa, wait, wait, where'd these people come from, right? And then, all right, that's great. I was thrilled to be signing because so often as a deaf person, I want to put these deaf audience first. And the fact, I mean, no offense, but like I, I'm signing it for them. So the town of Ironwood has a community college and, uh, there's one woman who came up to me who was signing and she was using what's called signing exact English. So, so there's ASL, which is an actual language. It's a full language with a full set of grammatical rules, sentence structure, so forth, all of that, right? Just like English has a complete language in its own right. Signing exact English is a, a system of signing. And it's very odd and frankly, uglier on the eyes. It's a system, not a language. 
It takes discrete vocabulary science from ASL, but it's used only to teach English for deaf kids. So it's not pretty. It's very clumsy way of signing. I'm trying to think of an example. Oh, so in ASL, for example, in the English word, it's time to go outside, okay? In ASL, time to go, right? This way. In C though, it's time to go out on my side. I mean, it really is a clunky way of talking. It's not a language, it's a system of just of science, but not a real language. So this background is important to understand what happened. This hearing lady comes up to me and she's signing to me in this strange way. And you know, they teach sign in that community college. And she was overjoyed to be doing this. And then just, I can't tell you though, I was just trying not to lose my temper. And you know, it's not that I, and I'm not one who's prone to doing that. I was just like, this is the worst. She was so proud that, you know, she was producing children of lesser God. And she was using a deaf woman that lived about an hour from Ironwood. That deaf woman was an adept ASL signer, but this teacher and director you see, and she was forcing the deaf actor to sign in this completely artificial way because she as a director didn't know the real language. And so I went to saw that, I went to see that production, it was painful on my eyes, I can't tell you. It hurt so bad. They did not do justice. It, it's the visual equivalent of nails on a chalkboard, how bad that was on my eyes. So that's what I mean. And it happens again and again. And normally, you know, I don't say anything bad about hearing people, but at that, at that presentation with those nine deaf people that were there in that audience, I told everybody in the audience, you know, that this model that you've just seen tonight of signing C is not a real language. And so I'm using the actual language ASL. So encouraging, I'm gonna encourage everybody to learn ASL to talk with real people, like use these people who are actual users of the language as your language models. Now that lady never talked to me again and I've never regretted it, <laughs> you know? For me, what has primacy is that deaf people have access to their language and culture. And so I think a lot of them that were there were used to seeing C and then when they saw actual ASL, it was like, oh, like butter over here is so easy on the eyes. I think like, you know, C can be kind of like C signs, not exact English, kind of like your clunky first bicycle with training wheels. And then you get on your roadster with it where you adapt and you're just flying by. That's the real language. Okay, Rachel, so it was awful. I've seen the way people sign and sign the exact English and the impact that has on students and on children. It can be a really profoundly negative impact on them. I, I have a short story, an example of this, about this deaf boy who was 17, tall deaf boy. To see him, you'd think he looked like the toughest fellow, right? I remember him coming up to me one day and I was his former teacher. And at that school, 
think we lost Adam. I think so. Did we lose Adam? Yeah, I think his screen froze up and then he disappeared. I'm not sure what happened. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> my speech is not perfect, which is why I prefer to have an appointment. The relation to my hunting. I did the probably an internet problem on Adam Aaron because his screen looks frozen. Maybe I could point for you more. Well, but I think you may have to start again because I don't know where his video was frozen. Okay. Maybe, right, I'll just okay. Turn on my so I'll just tell you all a short story to illustrate what sea signs is the impact it has. A long time ago, I was teaching and my student grew up and he became 17. It was in a hearing school that used sea signs. And that student came up to me and his face was very concerned, very worried. So I asked him what was wrong. And he said, Rachel, I think Christmas is broken. It's broken. And he was really upset. I said, what do you mean? Why do you think Christmas is broken? And he said, well, Colleen told me that on December 23rd, Christmas would break. Colleen was an aide at the school. Break. And I realized that she had used the sign break for Christmas vacation, Christmas break. She used the sign break, something breaking instead. And he thought, oh, Christmas is breaking. It's going to break. Um, this is a 17-year-old. So I had to tell him, no, no, she used the wrong sign. That's the sign. She didn't mean Christmas is breaking. Don't worry. And oh, he was so really, it was funny. But wow, poor yeah. kid. Yeah, what to add to what Rachel said. <clears throat> we studied that English thing. We use the same style for anyone. Right. I mean, we style. We use the same style for the the same one. Yeah. So you say break, but in Asia we have different types of the word break. Right. It depends on the meaning. For example, vacation, break, intermission. Right. Um, the clear yeah. because I think the word that they have maybe twenty different signs for the yeah. word that. Yeah. You know, it depends on the yeah. meaning of the word behind the, the word. Now, but that's the problem with right. that English, among other problems, is that they're not learning contact. Right. Anyway, Adam, are you back? Sorry about that. I don't know what happened with your connection, but we're back. Anybody else with anything else? And I just want to say thank you so much. I think, you know, to me, a good writer, you know, puts you in their shoes. 
And I think, you know, reading your poetry did that and then meeting you did that. I'm in love with Todd. I, <laughs> it was it was really great. And like I say, I, I want to read more. And I feel a lot like Victor did. Like it was beautiful. I think you and Adam work very well together. And I want to thank you both. And I think that's... So I just want to thank all of you so very much. And if I could mention one quick last thing I forgot. You know, this year I have uh, three books published this year. And so I just am going to show you the titles. That's it. Great. <laughs> Luna Fly. Right here. Which was just published. Uh, and then, of course, Chlorophyll. And then the next book to be published, the newest, is this. Oh. <laughs> A Quiet Foghorn. More notes from a deaf gay life. And that's it. And of course, um, this <laughs> Compassion Michigan, which is Ironwood Stories. And if you have any more questions, I guess not. But everybody, thank you so much for bearing with us with the tech issues. I appreciate it, everyone. Okay. Thank you so Wonderful. much. And we'll see you all, hopefully, next month so thank you you've been watching the up notable books club brought to you by the upper peninsula publisher and authors association to join or for more information please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com